3 to 51. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to Daniel. He looked Daniel, sorry, David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword, spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with sling and stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Thanks for that, Peter. Just get myself sorted out here. All right. So, good morning, Pathway. My name is Ryan, and yep, I'm the birthday boy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Etienne, wherever you are. It's hard to spot. Where is he? Oh, yeah, hiding. It's his birthday next week, so look out. <laughs> look out, is what I can say. Um, so... Yes, as I said, my name's Ryan, and for the next 15 or 20 minutes, we're going to unpack this very, very well-known story. If you're thinking, uh, it's David and Goliath, what is there to unpack? It's perhaps the most often told story in the whole Bible. I heard about this in Sunday school all the time. Or maybe you've heard this story before, and it's just the story of God helping David to overcome the impossible, that God was with David, and that he helped him to defeat Goliath. So David trusted God enough to go headfirst into battle against a giant. It's all about faith in God and overcoming trouble in our life. What if I told you that these thoughts were wrong? Well, well maybe not entirely wrong, but what I just described uh, is often what is thought of in regards to David and Goliath. And it's definitely not the entire story. So what if I told you that there was more to this story than what you learnt in Sunday school? Ask me, it's pricking up. I sure hope so. So that's the intent of this next uh, three-week series that we're doing here at Pathway. Uh, I want to tackle perhaps the three most often told Bible stories in Sunday schools. 
So first one being David and Goliath. And next week, we've got Jonah and the whale, followed by Daniel and the lion's den. Now, I suspect most of us are pretty familiar with these stories, and most of us have these little images of these cute little kids' Bibles, yeah? With a nice little happy people with beards that go through all these things in the kids' Bible, and it's all lovely and fun. But what if I told you there was so, so much more to these stories than what most of these kids' Bibles tell us? So that's the purpose of this series, to dig deeper beyond the familiar and see what else lies beneath these well-known stories. So this morning is the first of a series that we're going to cover over the next three Sundays. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, your word is jam-packed with significance and is still so relevant. Despite its age, it still packs a punch today. Even if we've heard the same story a hundred times, there is still more truth to be gleaned from it and be reminded of. Help us today to see this story afresh, to see what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear. Speak to us as we dig into this infamous story today. In Jesus' name, amen. So often when I read a story like this, I put myself somewhere in the story. I wonder, which character represents me? Who am I most similar to? Who can I relate to? I think we all do it to some extent. Now, The Simpsons is a very, very well-known and very successful TV series. You know what's attributed to its success? Each main character has a distinct personality type that almost anyone can identify with just at least one of The Simpsons. It gives it a personal level of connection. And it was a very, very clever tactic that made The Simpsons successful over many, many years. So let's do that today. We're not going to watch The Simpsons, but let's think about the personalities in the story. Let's try and figure out where we fit in today's story. To do that, I want to ask a question. Who represents who in this story? Now, what do I mean by that? Maybe asking a similar question in a different way helps. Uh, Whose shoes do you put yourself in when you read this story? There are a few different shoes in today's story and we can pretty quickly see that Goliath is the bad guy, right? It doesn't take much imagining to see that Goliath represents the bad guys, you know, all the evil in general here in this story. So I suspect we don't assume we fit in his shoes. That and they'd be enormous. There are also the shoes of the Israelite soldiers. Maybe the Israelite soldiers' shoes fit us best. You know, the people in the background who are terrified, And just useless, just sitting there doing nothing. We might, however, think that we fit nicely into David's shoes. You know, the guy who trusted God and did the impossible. Now, I suspect most of us are thinking that we're wearing David's shoes in this story. If you're anything like me, it is super easy to be led to think like this. That David, if we trust God and in full faith step out, we can overcome the insurmountable odds, even the impossible We can face our giants with God on our side. We can do anything that he wants us to. While this isn't untrue, I think there is much more to that than in today's story. So let's start with a little bit of background work. I hope you're all impressed with my slide. I made that all by myself. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with some background work. The Israelite army is assembled on one side, one hill, with the enemy, the Philistines, assembled on the other. So the Israelites, they're God's chosen nation. And he has grown them and led them and blessed them over many, many generations. 
So the whole of the Old Testament actually tells this, this story in great detail. God's chosen nation, grown and led by God to begin his kingdom here on earth. That's the Israelites. Now the Philistines, they were the enemy. There's another powerful nation. They wanted more power, they wanted more land, they wanted more wealth and they wanted more influence. That's why we see what we see today. The Philistines instigated this battle. They started it. So word had made it to Israel that the Philistine army were on the move and intended to fight. So the Israelite army got up, they dusted off their swords and went out to meet them. Now they actually met in a pretty good spot actually. Uh, as both sides were protected if they stayed on the hill. On top of the, each of the hills, they were relatively safe from one another. Hence, the 40-day standoff. That's a long time. Neither of the armies wanted to make the first move. If they did, it would make them incredibly vulnerable. So it would appear that they came to some sort of agreement. I'm not sure how they did this. Maybe they just yelled across the valley. I don't know. So this agreement was it was to be a one-verse-one battle. This is a good way to avoid mass death and slaughter and um, yeah, lots of unnecessary deaths and bloodshed. It's a good way to avoid that. One person from each army would come together and they would fight to the death. Now, whoever lost, lost it for the entire army. And the losing army would lay down their weapons and surrender. Whoever won, they would win it for the entire army. Not only that, for their entire nation. Now, the only problem is that the candidate from the Philistines is literally a giant. He is huge. Now, there's a little bit of debate on his height, exactly as different manuscripts and ancient writings say different things. But generally, Goliath is said to be at least two and a half metres tall. Now, for some perspective, I'm 1.9 metres tall, so we're talking, like, here, 600 mil taller than me. If you still don't quite understand that, think of your lounge room ceiling. You walk in, standard ceiling height in the house is 2.4 he would have to stand in your lounge room like this. He's a big guy, and that's the minimum measurement. There's measurements that say he's much taller. So he's a big, big dude. And now, if you have your Bible handy, you can look just a little earlier on in chapter 17. It talks about the weight of his armour and his spearhead. So his armour weighed 60 kilos. You think, oh, that's pretty heavy. I looked on weightandthings.com, and it says that a drum kit like this is 60 kilos. Could you imagine having that hanging off your chest? And then his, his spear, so just the head, not, not the spear, just the head, the pointy bit, seven kilos. You think, eh, seven, it's a few bottles of milk. But think about a bowling ball, the bowling alley. The heaviest regulation bowling ball is seven kilos, or just, just under seven kilos. Could you imagine hurling a bowling ball, like, from here to there? I don't think so. So I think you get the point. This guy is huge, and he's super strong, and he's very, very intimidating. So that's Goliath. He's our Philistine champion. Guess who Israel's champion is? He looks after sheep. And he's young. Some actually estimate, well, most people estimate, that he's actually around the age of 15 here. And what was his weapon of choice? It was a string with a pouch in it to throw small rocks. Sounds formidable, right? So that's some of the background on the people involved, who the champions were, and why they were there. The scene is set. Let's get into it. So how on earth did David end up here as the champion? The one person to face the giant and to hold the future of the entire nation of Israel in his hands. Talk about the pressure, my goodness. 
So in digging into this passage like we are today, it's helpful to look at what happens before and after the story in question. So in chapter 15, we see Saul, who is the current king of Israel, he makes a monumental blunder. He directly disobeyed God, and as a result of this stuff up, God rejected Saul as the king. Now Saul was still in charge, and he was still the king as far as people could see, but God was making plans to um, sort out a new king for Israel. So we see these plans coming into effect in chapter 16. David is picked to be the next king. However, he's not the obvious choice. We see in the story uh, that David's father, his name is Jesse, shows his sons to God's prophet Samuel. So Samuel was responsible for anointing the next king. Anyway, Jesse shows him his sons. Samuel relies on God and hears God speak to him as each man passes by. All of, sons, all of Jesse's sons pass by Samuel and none of them are picked as king. Samuel's like, uh, God very clearly told me that someone from your family is going to be king, Jesse. And your, each of your boys has presented himself to me and God has said no to each one. Are you not telling me something? Is there any other boys in your family? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, there's this other, other guy, but he can't possibly be the next king. He's out there, he's so young, he's just looking after the sheep. Samuel goes, we're not going to, we have to do this. So Samuel, I want, Samuel says, I want David. So David comes in, David is brought forward, and God selects him as the next king. No one expected that David would ever be chosen to be the next king. Not even his own father. Hence why he wasn't even there uh, when the, his, his um, brothers were being um, presented to Samuel to be the next king. He was out looking after sheep. So as the average onlooker or observer, David is unexpectedly anointed as both the next king of Israel and then a little bit later on, the champion to face Goliath. There was no way that anyone thought a teenage shepherd boy would be anointed as the next king. Nor would he be the guy to stand up against Goliath to save the entire nation of Israel. I mean, the only reason David was even at the battlefield in the first place was to deliver some bread, grain and cheese. He was not even part of the army. He was not an experienced soldier and he was not expected to take on the giant, Goliath, and win. So with a little bit of background on David, ask yourself, do David's shoes fit us, do you think? Is God using unexpected people to do the impossible through full faith and trust in him? Well, yeah, maybe. But it's not the entire picture. So let's park David there for now. And move on to the next pair of shoes. Let's look briefly at the Israelite army. We'll just try on their shoes to see if they fit us. They're standing back, powerless to do anything. Powerless to do anything against Goliath. They are terrified. They're helpless. They're hopeless. They're unable to advance forward or even retreat as either option would most certainly be met with death. They are facing a powerful army with a seemingly undefeatable champion, Goliath. So before Goliath fell, they had nowhere to go. Before Goliath fell, there was no hope. Before Goliath fell, there was no victory. They were completely hopeless and powerless to do anything. Did the Israelite army help defeat Goliath? Nope. We didn't read it this morning, but look at verse 11 with me. It says, that this is Israelite soldiers, it says they were dismayed. 
that they had lost all courage and were paralysed with fear, unable to do anything useful. How do you think the soldiers felt when they saw that their fate rested in the teenage shepherd boy? I doubt they were very happy about that. But I suspect they wanted someone huge, someone powerful, someone strong to come forward in order to defeat the giant. No one expected that person to be David. Does it sound like us? Do the shoes of the Israelite army really fit us? You might all think this seems a little abstract or a bit depressing or hopeless, but don't kick those shoes off just yet. Hang in there and I'm about to piece it all together. What if I told you that the shoes you and I fit are in fact not David's, but those of the Israelite soldiers? You know, the soldiers who are terrified and trembling in fear, hiding in the background, unable to do anything useful. They're unable to help do anything against the Philistines. What if they represented you and me? What if this story is different to what you learned in Sunday school? That changes the way we think, doesn't it? Allow me to explain. So who does Goliath represent in this story? Or who wears his shoes? Pretty quickly we can see he represents the you know, evil or bad things, right? Who's the Israelite army represent? Well, I'd argue that it's us wearing their shoes. Who then is David representative of? Who is in his shoes in today's story? Now, at the risk of sounding like an inattentive kid in Sunday school who's just been put on the spot with a question, the answer is Jesus. Now, this may or may not be a major plot twist for you. Perhaps you knew this already, perhaps you didn't. Whatever the case, it is good to appreciate the similarities between David's defeat of Goliath and Jesus' defeat of sin on the cross. What did we chat about earlier on? Was David the likely choice to become the king? Was he the likely choice to become the champion that defeats the Goliath? No, 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 he wasn't. Was Jesus the likely candidate to defeat Satan, sin and evil? No. Jesus was a boy born, for all the people knew, out of wedlock in a scummy old town called Bethlehem. And not only that, he was laid in a grassy thing that cows and stuff ate out of. Even their occupations are ordinary. What's David? He's a shepherd. What was Jesus? Well, it doesn't actually say, but most likely Jesus was a carpenter. Neither profession really screams champion, does it? What about their weapon of choice? In verse 47, David says, It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. What did David use? A sling. What did God choose for his weapon? The cross. Both the sling and the cross are unassuming. Both appear seemingly useless against the enemy. Yet, in God's sovereignty and power, the sling and the cross were used to incredible effect. So there are so many parallels to be drawn between David and Jesus. Here are a few more that I found on a commentary that I read. Listen along. Both David and Jesus represented their people. Whatever happened to the representative also happened to God's people. Both David and Jesus fought the battle on ground that, was right, that rightfully belonged to God's people, ground that they had lost. Both David and Jesus were sent to the battleground by their father. Both David and Jesus were scorned and rejected by their brethren. Both David and Jesus fought the battle without concern with human strategies or conventional wisdom. Both David and Jesus fought a battle where victory was assured even before the battle started. 
I think it's pretty clear that this is more than just a story of putting on David's shoes and trusting in God and overcoming our giants. Just as David won the battle for the nation of Israel, Jesus won it for us. The giant in our life is already dead. Jesus won that fight for us more than 2,000 years ago. On the cross, Jesus took our place. He confronted sin and evil. He was the champion who would win it for his people. Like the Israelite soldiers, we were powerless to do anything useful. We had no chance, no way of defeating sin. The only way for this big bad giant called sin could be beaten was by Jesus. Jesus died on that cross and rose again to kick Satan's butt. While Jesus did defeat him, that doesn't mean the world is no longer evil or has no evil in it. It sure does. Sin and bad stuff still happens and has a real effect on our lives today. Wars, poverty, corruption, death, pain and suffering, it's all real and part of our lives every day in some shape or form. There is that saying about winning the battle but losing the war, meaning that the battle or the minor conflict has been won but the war or the bigger picture has been lost. Well, Jesus won the battle but he also won the war. It's just that the war isn't over yet. Victory is won. Jesus has defeated Satan. The war is over. uh, The war is done. It's just not over yet. Do we live life as if the war is won and the enemy is defeated? You know, celebrating like those victorious soldiers and excited to be going home soon? This story is actually about overcoming giants. It's just not us that does it. It's Jesus. What are your giants that you face personally? Maybe it's that bad habit you've developed. Maybe a longing for your friend or family member to turn to God. Or even the never-ending stress and complication of work or maybe strained relationships. There are a lot of giants that we face on earth. What about thinking globally? Wars, poverty, human trafficking, corruption. There are a lot of big bad giants out there. Do we have the faith in Jesus, to overcome our giants, whatever they might be? Do we really believe that Jesus conquered it all? Whatever we face today, we know Jesus has defeated it. We can join with him in victory. That's not to say that life will be peaceful and easy, not at all. Satan has lost, and for as long as he can, he is going to try and bring down as many with him as possible. Jesus has already won the battle for us. And like David won it for the whole of Israel, Jesus won it for all who believe in him. So we can know for sure that all of our giants will fall to Jesus one day. We may see small victories from time to time here on earth, but we can look forward to that victorious day when Jesus returns, when the war is finished and peacetime begins. (laughs) When we, the army, victorious through Jesus, brought home. I was so sure I wasn't going to fall to pieces. What a day that will be. You said tissues too. (laughs) Thanks. All right, I'm going to go. We're good. We're good. At least it's not a blood nose like last time. We can stand firm in the victory of Jesus on the cross. Every day of our life, no matter what comes our way, the good, the bad, or the ugly. 
We know that Jesus has overcome, that the giant has fallen. Jesus won the battle for us. Jesus won the war for us. It's just that the war is not over yet. Hang tight and remember that the giant has fallen. Now, the giant is not called Goliath. That giant is called sin. Jesus defeated it for me. He defeated it for you. So John 16... Should be up there, sorry. John 16, 33, Jesus says this. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. God, thanks for winning the war for us. We were never going to be able to do it on our own. We had no chance of victory. The giant called sin was way too big for us to face. Thanks that we don't need to. Thanks that you conquered sin for us. Unassuming and unexpectedly, you conquered what we couldn't. Help us to live life victoriously. When bad stuff comes our way, help us to remember that you have beaten it. We might not experience the joy of freedom in this life, but we most certainly will when we enter eternity with you. God, we are just so thankful for your immense love for us that you would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.